Let's bow in prayer as we begin this morning. To you, Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ to open your word and to see what it is that you have for us today. The instructions which you gave to the Israelite people so long ago bear the truths today that they bore then. Even though some of the practices are different, certainly the spiritual truths that were behind them are important to us today as they were to them. All through the account of Scripture, we have the constant teaching that the just shall live by faith, faith in the sovereign God who sent his Son to die for us. And Lord, as we look particularly at the book of Leviticus, uh, just briefly uh, surveying that as we move on through the life of Moses, I pray that, that we'll see those things in this book that will be helpful to us even this morning. We ask for your blessing throughout our Sunday school today in every class, in Christ's name, amen. The book of Leviticus, which might be also called the book of the Levites, which is what Leviticus basically means, explains to us the sacrificial system and also gives to us the bulk of the moral code that was given by God to, Sinai, to, to Moses on Sinai. One of the things we have to recognize here is that while Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai for over 80 days in two separate periods of time, he not only received the Decalogue up there, but I believe he was given the information which we have written down in the whole Pentateuch. He revealed to him the events that had begun with creation, and then, of course, uh, well, not everything, of course, that we have in the whole Pentateuch was revealed to him then, because Numbers, which is what we'll be studying in, in greater detail shortly, is the history of the 40 years in the wilderness, or the 39 years yet to come uh, in the wilderness. But the other books, Genesis and uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, were largely revealed to him up there on the top of Mount Sinai, I believe. This particular book presumes, the book of Leviticus presumes the completion of the tabernacle and the dedication of the Levites as the priestly tribe within Israel. Undoubtedly, all that is proclaimed within this book of Leviticus was instituted in Israel before the people started out from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. And so I think Leviticus fits right here in between, chronologically, in between Exodus and Numbers, which is where it's placed here in the order of the five books of the Pentateuch. So it, it's sandwiched right in here in, in the period in which I believe it was given uh, by Moses to the people and, and recorded. And the first events were instituted as we read them there. Now the first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with the various sacrifices which were to be made for the Israelites individually and were to be made for the nation corporately. And last week we touched a little bit upon uh, that as an introduction and the fact that the blood sacrifices, which to us seem pretty horrible, were made particularly to remind the people of Israel of their sins. And that is specifically stated in Hebrews chapter 10, and we read those 17 verses in Hebrews chapter 10 at the very end of class last week. Salvation, salvation for the Old Testament Hebrews didn't come through the blood of these sacrifices. It came through faith in the living God. You remember the words in Genesis 
way back at the beginning of Genesis where it says that Noah believed God and God accounted that to him as righteousness. And then later we read of Abraham the same word. Abraham believed God and God therefore accounted this to him as righteousness. As we go through the book of Leviticus, just touching on a spot here and there, we're not going to be going verse by verse or even chapter by chapter through this book. But in touching upon it, what we are going to be discovering is that they performed these sacrifices, they followed these moral codes, but underlying it all is belief and obedience in God, and that is what brings them righteousness and salvation. They are looking forward to the death of Messiah unwittingly. See, particularly at this time, the only reference we have in the whole Pentateuch that could be inferred to refer to Messiah is, of course, the famous Genesis 3.15 verse. Other than that, you don't have really anything in the Pentateuch that could be very distinct, at least, in pointing to the coming of Messiah. This will be revealed through what we believe is progressive revelation through the years, the centuries, even the near millennium that would follow uh, this uh, Mount Sinai experience. So they're looking forward to Messiah through the blood sacrifices as we look back to Messiah today and our faith uh, in God, in Christ, and in the blood shed by Him on Calvary has brought us salvation and righteousness. You and I don't make any blood sacrifices. Uh, Paul calls upon us in, in Romans 12, of course, to make of ourselves living sacrifices, but, but that is to, in dedication to His service. But the blood sacrifice of Christ is what we look back to as they look forward to it, although without understanding that that's what they were doing. Now, later on, of course, the prophet Isaiah would make what, of course, was very enigmatic to many of the Hebrews, but uh, the prophecy which is given in Isaiah 53, which we read so often, and you remember the Ethiopian eunuch was pondering over this, when, when he had his encounter, which helped bring, to bring about his transformation. But I'd like to read just three of the verses in Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 4. Referring to the suffering servant, we know as Messiah. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. That means all of us. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him alone. You could sacrifice bulls and goats until you were tired of it. You could sacrifice whatever you wanted to sacrifice. It would never cleanse from sin. But the death of Christ, once and for all, as we're told in that 10th chapter of Hebrews, cleanses from unrighteousness. But again, it requires faith. I was listening the other day, well, I think it was last Sunday we were listening, no, I forget when it was, but anyway, we were listening to a man who was uh, on the radio preaching, and we didn't ca I didn't catch the first part of it, so I don't know, you know the context, don't even remember his name. But he was a man who was a Jew, and he said that his daughter had been away at college, and somehow she had come into contact with Christians, and she had become a Christian. 
and she called home to say that something had happened to her and of course through his mind with all kinds of things she was in a car wreck she's pregnant uh, but he said actually the most horrible thing that he could possibly think of was what she explained and that was that she'd become a Christian and but he was willing to search the scripture himself to try to find out what it is that she was believing and it was through the Old Testament scripture that he became convinced that the, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And this 53rd chapter of Isaiah was one of the primary passages which he read. And, and he, he says it just like God opened his mind to the, to the truth. You know. so, so it's there. But blind eyes can't see it unless God opens those eyes uh, to the truth. Now we can read that and, and we can see Jesus written all over that 53rd chapter of Isaiah and the 22nd Psalm and, and so many different passages uh, in the Old Testament. So, so we can look back clearly. But for the Hebrews there, the base of Mount Sinai, hearing the words proclaimed by Moses, they, they couldn't see Messiah at that time down the line. But yet, in the sacrificial system which they practiced, that's exactly what they were looking forward to. Now what is interesting about these sacrifices is you, you read through there and, and you discover that bulls were to be sacrificed and goats were to be sacrificed and lambs were to be sacrificed. But in that society of those days, even though they were a pastoral society and, and they raised all these animals, there yet were people who could not afford to sacrifice a bull, a goat, or a lamb. I mean, they were that impoverished. And God, in His mercy, allowed the Israelites who could not afford one of those larger animals to bring two doves or two pigeons to provide the sacrificial offering. In other words, in God's eyes, it's not the size of the animal or the amount of the blood. It's obedience and faith that made the difference. And what's interesting is that if some could not even afford pigeons or doves, he even allowed the blood actually to be set aside in the sense that he allowed for a tenth of an ephah of flour to be used in its place. Now that could not be for all of Israel or for the morning and the evening sacrifice or the atonement sacrifice on Yom Kippur or any of those things, but for the private individual gift that was brought for the sacrifice because God, as we know, looks on the heart of the person. What this teaches us is how absolutely fair God is. I, I don't know if you've ever been tempted to say, God, you're not fair. And I think that's based on the fact that we believe that He is almighty, all-sovereign, able to do all things, and sometimes bad things happen to us. You say, God, you could have made it different. Yes, you could have. I'd like to uh, read from Leviticus chapter 5, first verse 7. Leviticus 5, 7. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Then verse 11. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering, for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth, the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil in it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar. With the offerings of the Lord by fire, it is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him according to his sin, which he has committed from one of these, and it shall be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priests, like the grain offering. 
From this, we can derive one truth at least, certainly many truths, but one, I think, which is important for us today, uh, and that is that as far as material possessions are concerned, God demands more from the rich than he does from the poor. God never requests a gift that will jeopardize one's provision for his family. I don't know how many of you have ever read the 95 Theses written by Martin Luther, but in one of the Theses, about the middle way through the, the list, Luther makes the statement that, theoretically, if the Pope knew that people were being asked to give what, in effect, was taking the food from their babies' mouths in order to build this wretched cathedral, in Rome, he didn't use the word wretched, but in the great cathedral there in Rome, he would rather it be burned to ground than to have these poor children starve. That, that was Luther's premise. And that was one of his arguments against, of course, the indulgence. And, and you know, that's based on a biblical truth. That God is never going to require someone to make a sacrifice that would cause his family to starve. And that's not the kind of God we serve at all. But I think it's important at the same time to note that whether we're rich or poor, we must give of ourselves to Him. It doesn't matter what our education is, our social status is, our wealth. None of that can stand in the way of our committing our whole self to God. In other words, if we're rich, we have no excuse to withhold from God ourselves. And if we're poor, we have no excuse to withhold from God ourselves as a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. God expects us all, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, high class, low class, whatever we might be, God expects us all to dedicate our lives to Him totally and completely. So God is not a respecter of social class. God doesn't care if we're from the jet set or if we're below the poverty line. To, to Him, we all owe our total being day by day. In the 8th and ninth chapters of the book of Leviticus, we find a focus on the consecration and ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. Sin offerings were made by the priests for themselves and for the people. Now it's important, and it really comes through here, the priests were just as needy as the people. The priests were not more worthy before God, they were more responsible before God. And that's the same truth today for our pastors, for Billy Graham, or, or any of those who are in leadership within Christendom today. They are not more worthy before God than any of the rest of us. They are simply more responsible before God. Aaron offered a sacrifice for himself and for his sins, and that was necessary, and it has to occur first. You'll read that as you go through the passages. The priest will make a sacrifice for himself first and then for the people. Woe be to the pastor who is not on his face before God to, to, to make him right in the sight of God before he ministers. That doesn't mean God can't do anything. I've heard of people being saved 
through the preaching of a, pre of a preacher who wasn't even a born-again believer until later on. You know, God can do all things. But uh, that's not uh, something to be advocated, uh, actually, of course. But the sacrifice for the people then had to be made after the sacrifice was made by the priest for himself. Look at the ninth chapter, uh, beginning at uh, verse 15. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. He, next, he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. As you study this, you discover there's a real system developed here. There is a morning offering and there is an evening offering made every day of the year. In addition to those offerings, then, those sacrifices were to be the special sacrifices for Aaron and his family, for the nation of Israel as a corporate body, and for each individual who chose to bring a lamb or whatever the offering might be because he had been convicted in his heart of sin. And then, of course, as we'll, we get to a few moments to the 16th chapter, there was, of course, the very special sacrifice on Yom Kippur. So all of this was instituted to constantly remind Israel that they were sinners in need of God's cleansing grace. And you know what's interesting is that you and I can... This is one of the problems. I, I believe... Well, let's see, how should I put this without sounding getting somebody off on a tangent here. Uh, you've all heard the phrase, once saved, always saved, right? Well, that, that phrase can be beat into the ground. I mean, that phrase can be used as an excuse for all kinds of activity. I believe that if we're born again by the blood of Christ and truly redeemed, that we are in God's family and we can't get out of God's family. That's my own personal belief, and I believe that's what the Scripture teaches. But that is not an excuse to go about doing whatever we think we want to do, irregardless of the consequences or whether Scripture deals with that issue or not. We must daily deal with sin in our own lives. Scripture tells us in, in 1 John that if we, if we have sin, we're to confess that sin and God will continually cleanse us. And, and that is the teaching of, of course, the washing of the feet when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. The teaching there is not only humility, but the teaching is the need of daily cleansing from sin. Yes, you are clean, but not all. And we need to keep that cleansing going, keep confessing our sin before God so that we are able to minister. Otherwise, we clog up the communication line with God. And we need to keep it open so the we can hear the Spirit of God and, and, and that we can reflect Christ to those around us day by day, moment by moment. Now all of the things that, that Aaron and Moses and, and, and his sons do here are in accordance with the exact principles laid out here in the Scripture. They were obedient. Aaron was obedient. Moses was obedient. And we're keep, we keep being told in these passages that it was done exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, I will admit, of course, and some will say, but Moses wrote the book. But you have to understand, as, as we've already read in, 
in passages before and will yet in, in read in other passages, Moses will admit to sin. Moses will write down the things that he do, does and, and that he did that were wrong. And, and God has inspired him to put down the truth here. So when he says that it was done according, exactly according to what God had commanded Moses, I believe that's exactly what happened. And Moses isn't gilding the lily here. And in so doing, we read in the 22nd verse of chapter 9, we read this, Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people, and he blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and burnt offering and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And you and I would do the same if we were there. To see the glory of the Lord emanating out of the tabernacle and, and burning up the offering as it was there on the, on the bronze altar out there in front of the tent of meeting. It's just a magnificent picture that this brings up in your mind, or at least it should. God was honored by obedience, and therefore God honored Moses and, and Aaron in the, front, in the face of all the people by revealing his glory, by taking up the offering himself. I think it's very important to note that when we are obedient, God is glorified and others will know it and their hearts will be lifted up and God will be further exalted. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now in the midst of all of this, we suddenly come to the tragic 10th chapter. Everything is being done exactly as God had commanded Moses. Then all of a sudden you have the shock of the first three verses of the 10th chapter of Leviticus. One of the great dangers faced by people who claim to know God is the sin of presumption. That's why, again, alluding back to that little phrase, once saved, always saved. The principle is true, but to hammer that thing around and use it as an excuse for all kinds of bad attitudes and bad actions is, is totally unscriptural. And it is presumptuous. Presumption is generally based on an arrogant belief that somehow we're exempt from humble, exact obedience to the Word of God. Now, sometimes that comes by our saying, well, to me, that passage doesn't say that. To me, it means something else. And that, of course, is what the gay community has done with all the scriptures uh, in the Old and New Testament that has to do with the prohibitions against same-sex relationships, sexual relationships. I mean, the scripture is so plain, but if you decide you're going to distort it and change it and say, well, you know, it wasn't really, it wasn't in the original scripture or something like that, as if you're some kind of authority. Uh, I mean, that's presumptuous. And, and then to go as they do in the metropolitan churches, go ahead and, and hold services in the name of Jesus Christ in direct violation to scripture. I mean, you know, to me, it's damnable. But sometimes the idea behind this presumption is the belief that we have a superior relationship with God to others. We have greater understanding of what God is saying here than others. And so we're not really held to the letter of the law. Or God needs our talents and our ability or our position. You know, we're a high muck amuck in the government or something. Or we've got this beautiful talent of some sort. Or, you know, 
some kind of an ability. And so God will bend the rules for us because he needs us. Well, that's a bit presumptuous. I mean, the God of the universe, creator of all who needs nothing, needs us. I don't care if we've got the voice of Maria Lanza and, you know, the whatever other kind of abilities you can think of, uh, God doesn't need us. God is not willing that any should perish. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, but he doesn't need us in the sense that we use the word need. The idea is then we don't need to be careful about our lifestyle, as others must, who are of lower like, you know, lower form in, uh, in the kingdom of God. But as I said a, a minute ago, the scripture makes it clear that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're King Haimukamuk of Ooga Booga Land or whatever you are. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're Oliver Twist, you know, some little wretch in the streets of London. He, we all stand equal before God. One's as important as the other in the mind of God. And, you know, that's been twisted historically. It's been twisted so that, so that people who are a slave class have been treated as if they're, even by people who call themselves Christians, as if they're some kind of an inferior breed. Do you know that when the Dutch first occupied South Africa in 1650, the Dutch who came were avowed Calvinists, and they had very strong prohibitions against miscegenation. Uh, against sexual relationships outside of marriage. And yet when these men arrived in South Africa, they found these little people here called the Hottentots. And there seemed to be no barrier between them uh, performing sexual relationship with the female Hottentots because they didn't consider the Hottentots to be human. Well, you know, um, that's kind of stretching things because the scripture makes it quite clear that there's not supposed to be sexual relationships between humans and animals either. So uh, however you look at it, they're distorting truth in order to excuse what they want to do. And that, of course, has resulted in a very large minority group within a Cape Colony today called the Cape Colored, who are the offspring of that miscegenation which occurred clear back in the 17th century and, and subsequent centuries between the, the Dutch who arrived and the Hottentots who lived there in that area. Let me read this uh, first few verses of the 10th chapter of Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Aaron could make no complaint. They're my eldest sons. <laughs> They're heirs to all that I have. They're ordained priests. How can God do this? I mean, he could have said all these things. He didn't open his mouth because he knew in his heart what Moses was saying. These two sons focused on the prestige of their position rather than the responsibility of their position. I will just do it however I like because I'm an ordained priest. God had spelled it out. Now, we aren't told exactly what all they did. 
I mean, they offered strange fire. You know, did they use the wrong formula? Did they do it the wrong time? Well, whatever. We aren't given all those details. They are not terribly important. But what is important is what it says there at the end of that first verse that they had done, which he had not commanded them. So they wittingly did that which God had not told them to do, or which he had told them in effect not to do. I mean, if God says this is the way to do it, it means all other ways are wrong, by definition. This is the way walk ye in it. If you walk some other way, you're not in his will, you're not in his place. That's what he's saying here and in many passages of Scripture. Now, why is this so important? They were the priests. The eldest of them would be inheriting the high priest position. They were to be supreme examples of what is right before the people. If anybody did what was right, they had to do what was right. Now, I'm not saying that there's an excuse for anybody else to do wrong. But certainly the priests had to set an example of exact obedience. You know, we live in the 20th century, well, soon we'll have to say we live in the 21st century, in which we have kind of a laid-back attitude towards the things we do often. And today, of course, as you know, we, we live in a society where we have situational ethics, it used to be called a few decades back. But this whole idea of relativity, you know, Einstein discovered the theory of relativity, and that's all well and good, but when you bring relativity in, in a concept down to the spiritual, social, moral code of the human race, you're in trouble. It isn't just what's in the eyes of the beholder. It's what God has said is what we all do or don't do to express true faith in Him. And, and we can't just say, well, uh, I'll do it the way I feel and God will be satisfied. I mean, that's what Cain did. And Cain got himself into a great deal of trouble, as we may know. Let me read a passage from the 18th chapter of Matthew, which I, I think kind of emphasizes the importance of obedience. 18th chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called to himself, a, a child to himself, and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, what he's saying there is exactly applicable, I think, to this 10th chapter. Why did God zap Nadab and Abihu? Because they had become stumbling blocks to Israel. They had demonstrated that it was okay to just kind of approximate the will of God. You don't have to be so narrow-minded as to be exact. Just approximately. I mean, at least I offered fire before God, right? may not have been the formula he wanted or when he wanted it or how he wanted it or the right attitude, but at least I did it, right? No, that was a stumbling block before Israel. 
If the priest is not obedient to God, the people will see that and say, that must be okay then, that attitude of not being obedient or exact in obedience. And that's going to be very important because as we get over into the next few chapters of Leviticus, you see that God says you eat this and you don't eat that and you purify this and you purify that and, and you don't do something for 40 days after this happens. Uh, all these laws, well, you know, what if you say, well, you know, if I'm hungry and the only thing around is a buzzard, I'll eat a buzzard. Doesn't sound very appetizing to me, but, you know, God says don't. It's better to be hungry than to eat a buzzard. If the shepherd does not wisely guide his sheep to safety, the flock is lost. God speaks a lot about the shepherd of the sheep. It's a passage in Isaiah, latter part of Isaiah, we won't turn to it, where he really lambastes those shepherds which have led the sheep astray. I mean, in effect, he says, they will face severe judgment before God. And so exact obedience is demanded of these leaders in Israel. Now, God's action in slaying Nadab and Abihu might be viewed as rather harsh. Couldn't God just have, you know, given them a headache or, or you know, bawled them out through Moses or something? Why did God fry them on the spot? You know, it's kind of like you don't even get a chance to explain your disobedience. But, 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 but God, you know. But in reality, this is an expression of his grace and mercy. Had he not acted quickly, had he not acted decisively, others would have developed this complacent attitude. The people would have seen it as you get away with it. And all you get is a little slap on the top of the hand. And ultimately, that damns the souls of the people. This event, to me, is very interesting. Occurring right at the inauguration of this age of law and sacrificial system is closely parallel to an account you're very familiar with back in the fifth chapter of Acts. I'd like to just parallel these, if I might, for a moment. In the fifth chapter of Acts, we have an account which occurs at the beginning of the church age, which I think is very parallel to this account which occurs at the beginning of the age of law. Acts 5, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And he kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but God. And as he heard these words... Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard it. Now, just a minute before I go on. Notice, Ananias is not given any time to offer an excuse. He can't say, well, you know, it was this way. <laughs> no. He heard the words of, of Peter, and he dropped dead on the spot. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. 
And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Notice verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. And I think that that 11th verse is uh, very closely parallel to 10.3, where it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Before all the people, I will be honored. You can't fool God. God knows all things. And even though we don't see what Ananias and did repeated over and over again down through the church age, it, event, it occurred at the beginning of the church age as a warning. As a warning that God will be held holy and viewed as holy and treated as holy by his people. Now much of the church unfortunately has deviated so far from that as to be unrecognizable. But the warning was there. And Israel will deviate long ways from God's commands also. But the warning was there at the beginning. And you cannot say that God is not fair. Because God gives adequate warning, He pours out His grace and His mercy. As we read in the Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of... It's not the product of wisdom. It's the beginning. You don't even have any wisdom until you start out with the fear of God. The rest of it's not wisdom. It may be head full of worldly knowledge, but it's not wisdom. The book of Leviticus contains not only these instructions concerning ceremonial law, but also social law, and interestingly enough, some health codes that we probably even today don't totally understand. In, in doing all of this, uh, to me, this is also a real important concept. In God spelling out specifically, you eat this, you don't eat that. When you have a certain illness, you do this, you don't do that. Relationships are to be held in this way. These are the sacrifices. God is demonstrating His eminence, not just His transcendence. Yes, He is the transcendent God who fills the universe, but He's here. He's amongst His people. He cares about you and me individually. He didn't just look down at Israel as two million people and say, I love Israel. You know, like I've said before, the guy on the radio says, all oh, you out in Radio Land, I love you all. Yeah, right. <laughs> you haven't got a clue who's listening to you. you. All you do is love the people who send you money. God didn't just love Israel as a corporate group of people. He loved each individual Israelite, male, female, child, or adult equally. God is not just in his celestial palace up there, enjoying all of his universe, which he has created, and hoping that some of us down here will get it right. He's down here helping us to get it right. The 11th through 15th chapters, I'm not going to look at them in, uh, really other than to say that they primarily deal with health and diet codes. And even though we don't understand them all, even today, we know that God gave them for very specific reasons. You read through that 11th chapter and you say, I wouldn't want to eat those things anyway. You know, you know, all the winged insects that walk on all fours. Now, again, you have to understand when when Moses said on all fours, he was not he, he was talking about it crawls on its legs. He was not counting the number of legs an insect have. We, we know insects have six legs. He, he, he was just giving a kind of a generic statement here that they're detestable to you. And I could say, amen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
I haven't been too tempted lately to pick up a bug and eat it. You know. And, you know, you read down through there, and the same is true of lizards and crocodiles and whatever else. Uh, you know, I, I, well, there are people who think that alligator is great, and like everything else, they all taste like chicken, but... <laughs> God was very specific about this, and I think the primary motivation behind this was to enhance the health of the people, primarily. And, you know, you go through the purification laws, and, and that a great deal of time is spent talking about leprosy. And, and to us today, we think, leprosy? What's leprosy? We have to read about it to find out what it is, because probably none of us knows someone who is, an, is a leper. But leprosy was very common in those days. It, it was a plague that seemed to be all over the place, and therefore they had to have these laws about leprosy and separation of lepers and cleansing of lepers and all of the rest of it. And so God spends a lot of time. Why? Because he cares about his people. Not because to him lepers were some kind of vermin on the earth that had to be tossed over in the corner someplace. God loved lepers too. I mean, God one day will strike one of the kings, Uzziah, with leprosy because of disobedience. It was a heinous disease. But at the same time, to prevent it from spreading, these laws had to be given. And this treatment had to be, had to be made. Well, uh, today I do not want to launch into the 16th chapter of Leviticus because this is the key chapter. It's the pivotal chapter of the book. In many ways, it's the pivotal concept of, of all of the teaching of the Old Testament, dealing with the Law of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur. And so we'll do that uh, next week as we gather.